Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Alright. Welcome to... Another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Falou. And we are coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, beginning of NFL football tonight, baby. I'm very excited about this. I've been waiting for 
seems like forever, but probably seven or eight months. So very excited for that. Uh, if you have not uh, liked us on Facebook, please go to our Facebook page. You can go to uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse. That is Theology Matters with the Palouse. On that page, we are constantly uh, putting our kind of our updated shows. So as soon as this show is over, for example, the podcast is up immediately. Uh, we have articles. Just posted one there this week on uh, some interesting things that uh, Jill Osteen's wife said that was uh, pretty heretical, to be honest. And Al Mohler uh, wrote a whole article on that, so you can find that at our page, uh, as well as upcoming shows. So make sure you go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse to get the latest of what's going on with our shows, articles, uh, etc. One of the things that uh, we do on the show that has brought a lot of uh, attention is we host a lot of debates. We've done debates on um, probably the, the most recent one we did was on uh, the view of hell, whether hell is eternal punishment, uh, eternal conscious punishment, or uh, whether it is annihilation at the second uh, judgment. And uh, that was a that was a fire that was a fiery debate, no pun intended, uh, between Nate Taylor and Chris Date. We've got Roman Catholic versus Protestants on Sola Scriptura. Uh, we've got a Mormon versus a as a Christian on the nature of God. So be sure to check out our stuff. You can also find us on iTunes and be sure to uh, email us if you have any questions at theology matters radio at yahoo.com. Theology, theology matters radio at yahoo.com. Uh, October, next month here in Charlotte, they will be having the biggest um, apologetics conference in the, in the nation. And uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I go to school, uh, has been putting this this conference on for I think I think I want to say this is will be either the 20th or the 21st year uh, that they've been doing this conference. Uh, it's the best of the best, folks. You got uh, guys like Ken Samples, uh, Hugh Ross is going to be there, Gary Habermas, I believe Josh McDowell is going to be there. Uh, just just the top of the top as far as the world of apologetics. Uh, so, you know, you guys don't want to don't want to miss that. So, without any further ado, let me go ahead and bring on our guest. Uh, today's kind of a, a special episode. He is going to be giving a talk here uh, in a little bit. So, we're only going to do a show for an hour and a half today instead of our normal two hours. Uh, but let me go ahead and. and um, introduce our guest. Uh, Jonathan McClatchy, he was here two weeks ago, and we did a show on Islam. And uh, it got a lot of downloads. A lot of people uh, seemed to like the show. And he was saying, you know, he wanted to be able to go a little deeper into some of the uh, issues, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, maybe uh, historical errors that are in the Quran, stuff like that. So I said, well, you know, come on back. We'll do, uh, we'll do another show. And uh, if you miss the first show, there we kind of contrast just main main uh, categories such as uh, the view of God, what is the holy books, um, <clears throat> how is a person saved, heaven, hell, that kind of stuff. So uh, part one, if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to that one as well. And then in this one, part two, we're going to get a little more into the nitty-gritty. 
So, uh, Jonathan is an apologist and a frequent writer for websites such as crossexamine.org, the Christian Apologetics Alliance, and Christian Apologetics UK, where he presents the case for Christian worldview. He's also a regular contributor to the leading intelligent design website, Evolution News and Views, as well as Uncommon Descent. You guys will know that's familiar because we've had Casey Luskin on from time to time. He holds a bachelor's degree with honors in forensic biology, a master's degree in evolutionary biology, as well as a master's degree in medical and molecular bioscience. So let's, uh, let's bring... Let's bring our guest on. Jonathan, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you, Devin? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you coming back on and joining us again. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Just for maybe those who didn't hear the first show, tell us a little bit about yourself. How um, How did you come to know Christ? How did you get into apologetics? Were you raised in a Christian home? I was raised in a Christian home. I got into apologetics um, beginning in 2007 as I entered into my undergraduate program at University of Strathclyde where I studied forensic biology, um, studying the molecular um, the wonders of the cell and discovering you know, the nanomolecular um, machinery which drives um, the, the activities within the cell and recognizing that that could not come about by stochastic, gradual, neo-Darwinian stepwise pathway but was in fact um, better explained by an intelligent cause rather than a stochastic mechanism. Um, and so that was basically my introduction to, to, to apologetics, and I became interested in intelligent design, and that became my specialization within apologetics. But later I also became interested in other issues, such as New Testament historiography and Islam and comparative worldview, theology, um, and that kind of thing. Um, I was raised in a Christian uh, home. Um, I, was, I became a Christian in 1996, and um, so, so yeah, that's, that's my background. Okay, great. So being brought up in a Christian home uh, goes to show you folks it does help if you have parents that are uh, going to train you and kind of show you the importance and the need of the Christian uh, Christian worldview and, and that. So talk to us about Islam. I mean, I know you're interested in idea, but how in the world did you get into uh, interested in Islam? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating subject. Obviously, there's 1.7 billion uh, Muslims worldwide, and it's it, you know, it's self-professed to be the, the fastest-growing religion in the world today. And, you know, the, um, the Islamic ideology um, obviously has consequences, and I think it's an important cultural discussion, you know, what does the Quran and the primary Muslim sources, such as the Hadith literature, actually teach? You know, does it teach, um, as Muslims would maintain that, uh, or, or as modern Western Muslims often maintain that, um, that Islam is the religion of peace, the fourth, or um, does it, as other people would interpret the Quran, to say, um, promote violence and and, um, and the absence of peace. And so that, that's an important discussion which needs to be used there. And so I think it's important that we address these questions and we address, you know, is Islam actually true in the first place, right? We, um, you know, the Quran makes specific historical claims, makes specific scientific claims, it makes um, claims in other realms, and I think it's important that we address those. Um, and I think it's just part of, um, you know, it's part of being um, a responsible intellectual that you engage with other worldviews and, and learn why they think the way they do it has people who subscribe to those worldviews come to the conclusions that they do. So, 
so um, and also I began I, I, through my university years I began to interact with a lot of Muslims, and so I, I, I was getting you know objections from Muslims uh, to things like the Trinity, and they would make specific claims about their own religion, um, making particular arguments um, in support of it, and. So I, I, um, I, I was kind of forced to, to look into Islam in order to engage with, with that. Well, that's good then. That kind of shows the need to study some of these issues into uh, greater, greater detail. Uh, what is the Muslim population like where you're from? Um, certainly, um, Islam is on the rise in the UK. I mean, I, I don't know offhand the exact figures um, of the, the percentage of the population who would uh, consider themselves to be Muslim, but certainly it's rising. Um, and you know, I have a lot of Muslim friends. I interact with a lot of Muslims um, through my university years. I've always attended the um, Islamic Awareness Week, which happens once a year um, at many different universities around the UK. And um, I love to interact with Muslims and to engage with them and open the Quran with them, open the Bible with them, open the, the deep sources with them and discuss what um, is said therein and discuss Islamic origins and the evidence that they would bring forth to uh, support their worldview. I'm interested in why, why um, Muslims have often converted from um, um, so-called Christianity to a Muslim worldview as well. And I've interacted with people who are who would say that they were former Christians who converted to Islam, and I'm interested in getting into the reasons that they have for that as well. And uh, we were talking, you said you may actually be doing a uh, formal debate with one of the top Muslim apologists. Is that, uh, is that any, any word on that? Um, it's, it's a possibility. We're still working out. Well, good. We are glad that uh, you're here and that you're <laughs> you're on our side, so to speak. And uh, if I can do this here, let's let's kind of jump into this because I know we have a lot to to cover here. My my uh, computer devices here are kind of giving me a little bit of trouble. Um, what was the the first section? I think you were you were wanting to talk on there on. Um, so the one one thing which we kind of uh, addressed a little bit last time, but we didn't get into a lot of detail, was um, the Quran's take on the Christian and Jewish scriptures, right? So um, right. I, I developed um, I developed an argument um, in an article I wrote. Um, the article, people can download it um, if you just Google a simple reason why the Quran cannot be the word of God. And basically in that article, I, I, I build up an argument of three-premise syllogism which necessitates a conclusion which follows inescapably from the premises that the Quran cannot be the word of God. And so basically the argument that I present in, um, is, is this. Premise one, either the Bible is the word of God or it is not. Premise two, if the Bible is the Word of God, the Quran is not. Premise three, if the Bible is not the Word of God, the Quran is not. Conclusion, therefore, the Quran is not the Word of God. And so if it can be uh. demonstrated each of these three premises is true, then the conclusion inescapably follows and Islam is, is certainly false. Um, that's, that's a deductive proof. So if the three premises are true, these are the three assumptions, um, then the conclusion necessarily follows. That's just basic um, elementary logic. So... Um, so let's look at the first premise. 
So I have the Bible's the word of God or it is not. So that's a very easy premise to demonstrate. You just need to show that it's a, it's a true dichotomy, right? It's a mutually, these are mutually exclusive options. Either the Bible's the word of God or it is not. There's no in-between, right? So the first premise right. is true. Um, let's look at the second premise. If the Bible is the word of God, the Quran is not. So um, there, are, there are places in the Quran which fundamentally disagree with the teachings of the Bible. So, for example, in Surah An-Nisa, the fourth chapter of the Quran, verse 157, we read, um, in reference to the Jews, um, they, uh, they say, we flew the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, and the messenger of Allah. But they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they were deluded by resemblance. And those who differ in the matter are surely in debt about it, but of a certain, certainty they did not kill him. So in the span of 40 Arabic words, the Quran denies the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, in, um, in other passages, such as uh, Surah um, Almeida, verse 75, it will deny the you know, deity of Christ, saying that Jesus is no more than a messenger, a rasul, an apostle, and there will be messengers before him. His mother was very truthful. Um, and in Surah Al-Anam, verse 101, it will say that far be from Allah, he should beget a son. So, obviously, it denies the deity of Christ. It certainly denies the sonship of Christ. It denies um, the crucifixion of Christ. And so, these are core doctrines of the teachings of the New Testament. And so, clearly, um, either um, the, the Quran is right on those points, or the Bible is right, or maybe neither of them are right, but they both certainly cannot be true. And so the second premise, therefore, is true. If the Bible is the Word of God, the Quran is not. So then the, the um, crucial premise um, is premise three. Um, if the Bible is not the Word of God, the Quran is not. And so if this premise is true, the, con- the conclusion that the Quran is not the Word of God necessarily and inescapably follows. And so basically... Um, my argument is this, that the Qur'an um, actually um, suggests that the Christian and Jewish scriptures are in fact previous revelations from God. And um, let, let me just um, give a few um, references for that. So in Surah Al-E-Imran, for example, verse 3, he has revealed to you the book with the truth, that's the Qur'an, confirming what has been before it and has sent down the Torah and the Angel. Um, so the Torah and the Injil, the Injil is the word that the Quran uses for the gospel, means good news, and and so it's claiming here that the Torah and the Injil are previous revelations from Allah. Now Surah An-Nisa, that's the fourth chapter, verse 136, or you who believe, to believe in Allah and his messenger, and in the book he has revealed to his messenger, and in the books, plural, he has revealed earlier. Whoever disbelieves in Allah and his angels and his book and his messengers and the last day has indeed gone far astray. So obviously, um, Muslims today only have one book, and yet the Quran in Surah An-Nisa says that they have books, plural. Um, so obviously, um, there's a problem there. I mean, what books are we referring to? Um, and uh, the Quran seems to think that the Torah and the Gospels are previous revelations, and those constitute books of Allah. Uh, likewise, um, also in Surah An-Nisa, verse 163, surely we have revealed to you, that I'm speak, speaking to Muhammad, as we have revealed to Noah and to the prophets after him, and we have revealed to Ibrahim, Ishmael, um, Isaac, and Jacob and their children, and to Jesus, and so, and so forth, um, and we've given um, the, the Psalms to David. Um, so the Psalms here, according to Surah An-Nisa, verse 163, um, are also revelation, a previous revelation from Allah to David. Um, another one, um, Surah Al-Isra. 
Your Lord knows best, and all those in the heavens and the earth. And we have certainly granted excellence to some prophets over some others. And we gave David the Psalms. Um, and he even quotes out of the Psalms. It says, say, call those um, who you assume to be gods besides him, while they have no power to remove distress from you, nor to change it. Um, and uh, Surah um, Al-Anbiya says, and we have written uh, in the Psalms after the advice that the land will be inherited by my righteous slaves. So the Psalms and the Torah and the Injil, according to the Quran, are previous revelations from God. Um, the Quran even goes so far as to assert that the prophet Muhammad is prophesied in both the Old and the New Testaments. So, for example, in Surah Al-Araf, verse 157, those who follow the messenger, the unlettered prophet, whom they find written with them in the Torah and the Injil, that means the Gospel, and who bids the what is fair, bids them what is fair and forbids what is unfair, and makes lawful for the good things, and makes unlawful for the impure things, and relieves them for the burden and of the shackles that were upon them, so those who believe in him and support him and help him and follow the light sent down with him, those are the ones who are successful. And so here we have again a, a claim that Muhammad is found in the pages of the Torah and the Gospel. And then in Surah Asaf, verse 6, remember when Jesus, son of Miriam, said, O children of Israel, I am a messenger of Allah sent towards you, confirming the Torah that is sent down before me and giving you the good news of a messenger who will come after me whose name will be Ahmed. But when he said to them, when he came to them with manifest science, he said, this is a clear magic. Um, and that's interesting. You know, the Quran claims that Muhammad is found in the pages of the Bible. And if indeed it is the case that Muhammad is not found in the pages of the Bible, then Islam is false. Um, and I, I mean, Muslim apologists have searched high and low and have never been able to find an example where Muhammad is mentioned in the Bible. Perhaps we can get into that later. Um, but um, Muslims will often come back and say that, um, that the, well, the, the Injil, the, the Gospel, and the Torah has been corrupted somehow within the line, or has been lost perhaps. And this is their common rejoinder, that the, the Injil and the Torah referenced by the Quran are not the ones currently in the possession of Christians and Jews. And there's a problem here. Um, even you know, um, your listeners may be familiar with the, the textual evidence which suggests that the New Testament that we have today actually reflects the, the, the scriptures as they were originally written. But um, what's interesting is that the Quran also attests that the Christian and Jewish scriptures have not been corrupted. So it says, that, for example, in Surah Al-Baqarah, that's the second chapter, in verse 91, when it is said to them, believe in what Allah has revealed, they say, we believe in what has been revealed to us, us, and they deny what is beyond it, whereas that is the truth which confirms what is with them. Say, why then have you been slaying the prophets of Allah earlier if you were believers? So, um, and also, so, um, uh, so, so the truth which confirms what is with them uh, uh, assumes that the, the Jews and the Christians have that in the possessions. The verse contends that the scriptures previously revealed by Allah, that is the Torah and the Injil, are with them, which is the people of the book, namely the Christians and Jews, at the time of the revealing of the Quran in the 7th century. Um, so if the, if the Christians and Jews didn't have um, access to these scriptures, the verse absolutely makes no sense. Um, and then in Surah al Imran, verse 70, or people of the book, why do you disbelieve in the verses of Allah while you are yourselves witnesses to those verses? So again, 
It claims that the Christians and Jews have those scriptures in their possession. And then Surah Al-Imran, verse 199, Surely among the people of the book there are those who believe in Allah, in what has been sent down to you and what has been sent to them. And um, is humbling themselves before Allah. They do not barter away the verses of Allah for, for worldly gains. They have their war, war, reward with their Lord. Surely Allah is swift at reckoning. So notice in that verse that the use of the plural personal pronoun them is used. So the, the, um, the revelation from Allah was apparently sent not only to Jesus, as some Muslims would maintain, um, but to them, meaning the people of the book. So um, it, that, that's a, a rejoinder that I would use when someone says that, that, um, that the Injil was, was a special book revealed to Jesus and doesn't refer to our four Gospels that we find in our, in our canon. Um, and um, we, we also read, to give another example, in Surah Al-Maida, verse 68, and say, O people of the book, you have nothing to stand on unless you uphold the Torah and the Injil and what has been sent down to you from the Lord. Um, and so not only does that text command the people of the book to uphold the Torah and the Injil, uh, which they must have in their possession for the command to even make sense, but they are told of the scriptures that were previously sent down to you. And so then you have to ask the question, who does you refer to? And in context, it can only refer to the people of the book, namely the Christian. Um, and so this is difficult to square with the popular Islamic notion that the Injil was revealed only to Jesus and was quickly lost without leaving any trace in history. Um, again, the text um, assumes that the people of the book possess the Torah and the Injil and that they have been neither corrupted nor lost. And if that wasn't enough, here's one more example. In Surah Yunus, verse 94, So, O Prophet, even if you are in doubt about what has been sent down to you, ask those who read the book revealed before you, um, and so the text, again, makes no sense unless the Christians and Jews have access to the books revealed before Muhammad. The Muslim contention that the Christian and Jewish scriptures have been corrupted beyond recognition is simply without support from the Quran. Um, moreover, um, the Quran teaches that Jesus was a successful preacher of Islam according to the Quran. So that's an important difference between Christian and, and Muslim theology. Muslims would actually maintain that Jesus himself was a practicing Muslim and a Muslim preacher. And um, we read in, in Surah Al-Imran, verse, uh, verses 50 through 52, I, Jesus, have come to you confirming that book which is sent down prior to me, that is the Torah, and um, and to are permissible for you um, to reveal what is permissible for you, some of what has prohibited to you. I have come to you with a sign uh, from your Lord, so fear Allah and obey me. Allah is surely my Lord and your Lord, so worship him. This is the straight path. So when Esau sensed disbelief in them, he said, Who are my helpers in the way of Allah? The disciples said, We are helpers of Allah. We believe in Allah. So be our witnesses, and so be our witness that we are Muslims. So according to that text, Jesus was at least somewhat successful as a preacher of Islam, and his own disciples themselves, at least some of him, uh, Peter, Matthew, and John, are contributors to the New Testament. So if these disciples were Muslims, why is there theology so strongly onto the Quran? Um, and we also read in, in verse 55 of that same chapter in the Quran, when Allah said, O Isa, I am to take you in full and to raise you toward myself and to cleanse you um, of those who disbelieve and to place those who follow you above those who disbelieve up to the day of doom, then to me is your return, whereupon I shall judge between you in that over which you have differed. 
And so in that text, a lot of promises Jesus that he will place those who follow him above those who disbelieve up to the day of doom. And if barely anyone was a true follower of Jesus, that is, a Muslim, then this text simply cannot be understood. And um, uh, there's, there's just text after text after text. I'm only giving you some, and there's many more, which um, suggests that you know, the author of the Quran believes um, the, the Christian scriptures to be in the possession of the Christians of his day, and the Jewish scriptures to be in the possession of the Jews of his day. Um, and that's even before you talk about the, the textual preservation of the Bible, which I think you can make a compelling argument for. Uh, even the Quran teaches that no one can alter the words of Allah. For example, in Surah Al-Anam, verse 34, and the, and the messengers have been rejected before you, Muhammad, but they stood patient against the rejection, and they were persecuted until our help came to them. No one can change the words of Allah, and of course, some accounts of the messengers have already come to you. Um, and, and in verse 115 of that same chapter, none of their teaches work. Um, and so the, the te- um, and that's also in Surah Al-Kaf, verse 27, there is no one to change his words. So I think you, know, you can make a very compelling argument for the third premise of that syllogism. If the Bible is not the word of God, the Quran can't be either because the Quran asserts that the Bible is the word of God. But the, Bible, the Quran fundamentally contradicts the Bible, and so um, if the Bible is the word of God, the Quran can't be. And so you've got those two premises, and the first premise is obviously true. And so the conclusion necessarily and inescapably follows. And I've run this past many, many Muslims and have never managed to hear them present a cogent rebuttal to that particular argument. Yeah, that's 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 a very good argument. I'd be interested to hear how they how they grapple with some of that. Uh, the number to call, maybe you're a Muslim or maybe you're a Christian and you have questions uh, to get on the line and talk with Jonathan is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And uh, let's see, Jonathan. You had mentioned earlier about is Muhammad in the Bible. Uh, right. Do you find Muhammad in the Bible at all? Um, I don't. I mean, often Muslims will argue that uh, this is this is a demonstration um, of the prophetic credentials of, of Muhammad, and they'll argue that he was he, he's actually prophesied in the Bible just as Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament, and they were in fact committed to that position. So you can argue um, in syllogistic form again by saying premise one. If Muhammad is not found in the Bible, then Islam is false. Premise two, Muhammad is not found in the Bible. Conclusion, therefore, Islam is false. Um, and I think that um, the first premise, if Muhammad is not found in the Bible, Islam is false, is, um, is demonstrable because the, the Quran claims, as I just showed, that Muhammad is found in the Bible, and specifically in the words of Jesus as well as in the Torah. Um, and so we can actually look at those scriptures and see, do we find Muhammad in them? And therefore, we come to the second premise, that Muhammad is not found in the Bible. And so we have to look at the texts that Muslims go to to show this. I mean, this is their, um, they've searched high and low. They've had um, you know, 14, 14 centuries to come up with, to find Muhammad in the Bible somewhere. You know, they've had a lot of time. And Muslim apologists have come forward and they've suggested places where you might be able to find Muhammad in the Bible. And so we have to look at those and see whether they are convincing or not. And so one of their most famous, uh, or one of their most popular texts to go to is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18. And we start at verse 15 um, and read from there. So it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet 
like me, as uh, Moses talking, from among you, the Israelites, uh, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will, will require it of him. Um, and so forth. And so the Muslim apologist argues that this is a reference to Muhammad, and there's two reasons they make this, they draw this conclusion. One of them is that it speaks about how God will put his words in prophet's mouth. And they'll say, well, this is similar to the way that Muhammad um, was commanded to recite, and he recited um, the, the words that the angel Jibreel revealed to him that later formed the Quran. Um, but you know, um, but Jesus, you know, he, he also um, was, had words placed in his mouth by the Father. And so you could also say that Jesus had fulfilled that criterion. But secondly, can we make an argument? The, the, their argument also um, is, um, is that it says that um, he will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. And they'll say, well, brothers here obviously has to mean Ishmaelites because Ishmael is the brother of Isaac. And so since Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, this makes Muhammad a candidate, but it doesn't make Jesus a candidate because he was an Israelite. Um, but I would argue that this not only is demonstrably false interpretation, but you can actually use this to demonstrate that it cannot refer to Muhammad. So it's not just an absence of evidence, it's actually also an evidence of absence. So I would, um, you, um, you can demolish this argument by looking at the context of Deuteronomy chapter 18. So we start from the start of the chapter, and it says, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So brothers in this context has to mean Israelites because the Levitical priests are said to have no inheritance among their brothers. And so that's a real, pro real problem. Um, and so it, um, therefore Muhammad, I would argue, is precluded. Um, another text they like to go to is in John chapter uh, 14 and in John chapter 16 where we read about um, the helper that, um, that, that Jesus promised to the disciples. And he's, the word there in the Greek is the parakletos, uh, which means helper. And um, we, we read in John chapter 14, if you love me, this is verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, parakletos, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Um, and so I argue that, you know, they argue this is Jesus looking forward to the time of Muhammad and he's predicting a helper. Um, and this is really the only text they can go to because no, nowhere else does Jesus predict that someone else would come in the future. But this cannot refer to Muhammad because it says in verse um, 17 that you know him, and the disciples, of course, didn't know Muhammad, uh, for he dwells with you, and the you refers to the, the disciples, and of course he didn't, Muhammad never dwelt within anyone, and it says he will be in you. 
And so not only did Muhammad not meet the disciples, but he certainly never dwelt within them. So that's something only a spirit could accomplish. And so I definitely only refers there to the Holy Spirit. But what about John 16, which is another passage which also talks about the Parapetos? Well, in John 16, uh, we have um, in verse 7 um, uh, another reference to the helper. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is your evangelist that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But that's, um, you know, the, the, the helper, uh, if you argue that this has to be interpreted as Muhammad, you have to also um, interpret it as saying that Jesus himself will send Muhammad. And that certainly is, I don't think, compatible with Islamic theology. Um, and it also says in verse 12 and following, I, will, I have still had many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Bear your truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then verse 14 of the killer, she will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father is mine, therefore I said, Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Muhammad never glorified Jesus. And so the argument just simply collapses. Um, I'll take one more example. In Song of Solomon, um, chapter 5, uh, your listeners may be familiar with the book of Song of Solomon. And um, the, the Song of Solomon is um, a, 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 a piece of poetry. It's written by um, a, a bride to her coming to, to her to-be husband. And um, she writes in verse 16 that his mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And so it's, it's a celebration of the love that God has ordained in marriage and it's drawn from uh, the speech of, of, of the bride reflecting on her love for her, um, for her lover. And in describing this love, the bride says that his mouth is most sweet. And the Hebrew term there is mamtakim, which, which means most sweet. And um, there's, um, there's, there's a, um, a parallel between mamtakim and machmadim, which And this, this, the second term that I said there is a, is a, is a form of kamed, which means desirable thing. And it's, it's used a, a total of 13 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and it's used in, here in the plural, and it's used um, in, um, to um, it's used intensively. So it's, it hence means most desirable, and it's been used uh, descriptively of the husband. Now, in, um, uh, and of course, you know, Mahmadim basically sounds somewhat similar to, to Muhammad, and. Muslims often, by ignoring the problems inherent from moving one language to another, which is a whole other issue, they move from Muhammadim to Muhammad, which sounds similar to Muhammad, finally concluding um, that here in the original language we find Muhammad. And so if every appearance of this term is a reference to Muhammad, this is the problem. You have to argue that in, so if you read, for example, if you read in 1 Kings um, chapter 20, verse 6, um, or I'm um, turning in my Bible, you read, um, this is, so this is um, in the context of Ahab's war with Syria, and he says, Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and, 
and houses of your servants and lay hands on Muhammad and take it away. And that's the, the interpretation you would come to if you take the Muslim view. Um, also, if you turn to Second and Chronicles um, in, 30, in chapter 36, um, where I'm turning, um, if you go to verse 19, uh, it says, um, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed Muhammad. Um, so, so you run into all these. I'll give you one more. Um, Isaiah 64.10. Um, in Isaiah 64.10, we read, um, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion, um, a wilderness. Jerusalem, um, a desolation. Verse 11, A holy and Muhammad house where our fathers praise you has been burned with fire, um, and Muhammad become ruins. Um, so, you know, if, if you're going to argue that that um, Muhammad is the correct translation, there you have to argue that um, that Muhammad is also the correct translation, and all those other passages, and that simply isn't the case. Um, so that's the problem with the with the Muslim argument there. And so I think you can argue very persuasively. I mean, these are the three most popular texts that Muslims go to. And if those aren't good arguments, this is the best of God. Um, you cannot find Muhammad in the Bible. And therefore, the second premise is demonstrated. And therefore, the conclusion necessarily follows that Islam is false. Yeah, restate the argument again, Jonathan, just one more time. This is the formal argument. Sure. Um, so the, the argument in syllogistic form is premise one. If Muhammad is, is not found in the Bible, Islam is false. Premise two. Muhammad is not found in the Bible. Conclusion. Therefore, Islam is false. And so I've demonstrated premise one because um, the Quran claims that he's found in the Bible. I've demonstrated premise two because we've gone to um, the, 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 the 14 centuries to find Muhammad and we've gone to the most popular text they go to and shown conclusively that they cannot refer to Muhammad. And therefore, the conclusion necessarily and inescapably follows that Islam is false. All right. One of the things as Christian apologists that we do is we like uh, science. Science is our friend, and you have whole ministries dedicated to arguing from the scientific evidence, uh, not only for the existence of God, but the triune God of the Bible. Talk to us a little bit about Islam and uh, their claim of scientific accuracies, because if, if Islam is divinely uh, divine in origin, uh, then it should have some of those things right. Uh, it should have all of the things right when it talks about it. Anyway, talk to us about some of the problems with uh, science in the Quran. Sure. So there's um, there's an argument that's very popular in Muslim circles where they will argue that the Qur'an contains great scientific insights. And this is evidence that the, the Qur'an is the word of God. And um, you can make an argument against Islam similarly by saying, uh, premise one, if, um, if a book contains demonstrable scientific errors, that book is not the word of God. Premise two, the Qur'an contains demonstrable scientific errors. Conclusion, therefore, the Quran is not the word of God. So here's a third argument demonstrating that the Quran is not the word of God. So let's first look at the positive argument that Muslims uh, present to demonstrate that um, the Quran is the word of God by looking at those scientific insights. 
I mean, it's, hard, it's actually far harder to make a syllogism for the Muslim position here because a book that contains scientific correct and the correct scientific statements isn't necessarily the word of God, but it is that the, the reverse is true. A book that contains demonstrable errors is not the word of God. So it's, it's far harder actually to make the argument here for the Muslim. But if, you, if we were to look, for example, at Surah Al-Muminun, uh, uh, verses 12 through 14, we read, We created uh, a man from an extract of clay, then we made him as a drop in a place of settlement firmly fixed. Then we made the drop into an alaka. Then we made the alaka into a makkah, which means a chewed substance. And so the word alaka here, in, which is an Arabic term, it can mean three things. It can mean leech, suspended thing, or blood clot. And this, basically, Muslims often attempt to argue that um, an embryo at one stage resembles a leech. Um, that, um, I would argue, is quite um, a debatable, controversial and concept in any case, um, um, and uh, the um, it's, it's also argued that the, the term suspended thing can refer to the suspension of the embryo in the womb of the mother. This is the Muslim argument, um, and I would argue that's a real stretch here. Um, and sometimes they'll, they'll try to argue, well, an embryo looks a little bit like a bit of chewed gum, and they'll say this is comports with what the Quran says about what an embryo should be like, and it's called it a mukka, which can mean chewed substance. But it's really just, um, it seems like a very ad hoc, a very stretch argument. You have to, you know, they show images sometimes in their books showing a bit of chewed gum and an embryo, typically a pharyngula stage or something like that. Um, and the, the gum will typically have tooth marks symbolizing or representing the somites or something like that. But it's it's um, it's a really poor argument. And it's just, um, if you want to argue, and, and, and besides the fact that even, you know, it's, it's a stretch to say there's anything of, of real scientific content in the Quran. You have to then look at all of what the Quran says about science and determine, well, are, am I cherry-picking examples which seem to be consistent with modern science, but I'm leaving out other examples which are not? And so um, I'd say that the argument from science is so absurd that just looking at these examples is to refute it. I mean, um, uh, so another example is that um, the various verses in the Quran teach that the mountains have roots, um, and that's um, supposed to be something that Muhammad couldn't have known. Um, but I would argue that these these verses don't teach that mountains have roots, but in fact just assert that they were placed on the earth to keep it fixed and standing firm. Um, and so um, that interpretation, I think, is probably the best, and their argument, in any case, is a real stretch. Um, I think I think it's more likely that the author of the Quran viewed mountains as a sort of paperweight to keep the earth still. And uh, that would be the best reading of Surah Kaf, verse 7. As for the earth, we have spread it out and cast on it firm hills. Um, and um, you could also make an argument that the, that the author of the Quran thought the earth was flat and give a number of references for that. Um, but if we, if we look at what the Quran says about modern science, um, so the um, in, in Surah um, Al-Mulk, for example, verse 5, it says, We have decorated the nearest sky with lamps, and we have made them devices to stone the devils, and we have prepared for them the punishment of hell. So according to the Quran, um, stars are missiles that Allah uses to hurl at demons. Um, they stone the devils with them. And we also read um, along similar lines in Surah Al-Jinn, verses 8 and 9, 
how we had sought to reach the heaven, but we found it filled with stern guards and flames, and that we used to sit at places therein to listen, and if one will try to listen now, we will find a flame in ambush for him. And so, um, and this is from the perspective of the jinn, which are um, spiritual beings in Islamic theology who are spoken of frequently in the Quran. And the jinn desired to eavesdrop the heavens, but they were chased away by shooting stars. And the same idea is also taught in, in Surah Asafat, um, verses 6 through 10, in which you read, Verily we have decorated the nearest sky with the adornment, the, the stars, and have made them a security against every rebellious devil. They cannot listen to the upper realm and are hit from every side to be driven off, and from them there is, an there, there is a lasting punishment. However, if one snatches a little bit, he, has pursued, he is pursued by a bright flame. Um, and then you want to ask, well, are we interpreting this correctly? I mean, is this, is this poetry? Is this um, allegorical? Or is it literal? Is it meant to be taken literally? And this is a question that we should ask. But one interesting thing we can look at is how the early Muslims understood those verses. Right? This should be enough to settle the matter. Um, the earliest generations of Muslims, how did they understand it? And in Sahih Bukhari, Volume 4, Chapter 3, Dars, Abu Qatada, um, mentioned Allah's statement, and we have adorned the nearest heavens with lamps, and said the creations of these stars is for three purposes, i.e. as decorations on the sky, as missiles to hit the devils, and as signs to guide travelers. So if anybody tries to find a different interpretation, he is mistaken and just wastes his efforts and troubles himself with what is beyond his limited knowledge. Um, and the same concept is also found in Sahih Muslim and uh, in Sunan Ibn Majah which are other Hadith traditions. And so you find um, you know, the, the early Muslims are interpreting the Quran in the same way that I just interpreted it. And so I do think I'm going out in a limb by suggesting that the author of the Quran really does think that stars are missiles that Allah hurls the demons to strain their ears in the direction of the heavenly councils. You know, Muhammad is this absurd notion of the universe, absurd notion of cosmology, absurd notion, absurd notion of um, astronomy. And the, the, his absurd notion of astronomy is also demonstrated by looking at his views on the trajectory of the sun and moon. He actually thought the sun moved um, in the sky, um, and, and, and not uh, in relation to the earth, not just using the language of appearance. Um, so in, in, um, in the 18th chapter of the Quran, um, in Surah Al-Kaf, verses 83 through 86, we read that, um, they, they ask you about Joel Karnin. Who is Joel Karnin? Joel Karnin, most Quranic commentators would identify as Alexander the Great. And they say, they ask you about Joel Karnin, say, I shall now recite to you an account of him. Surely we give him power on earth and give him means to have everything he needs. So he followed a course until when he reached the point of sunset. He found it setting into a miry spring and found a people near it. We said, oh, Joel Karnin, either punish them or adopt good behavior with them. So he found the sun setting into a pool of murky water, a miry spring, and found a people living nearby. I mean, that is ridiculous, and it is absurd to find. Um, now we, um, so, so Alexander the Great, he travels so far that he finds a place where the sun sets. Um, he's even able to find the place of sunrise if you continue reading in that chapter. Um, and in Surah Yasin, verses 38 to 40, we're even more clear. It says, and the sun is quickly proceeding towards its destination. That is the designing of the Almighty, the All-Knowing. And for the moon, we have appointed measured phases until it turned like an old branch of date palm. 
Neither it is for the sun to overtake the moon, nor can the night outpace the day. Each one is floating in an orbit. So clearly here it's arguing that the, that the sun cannot overtake the moon. How can you have the sun overtake the moon if it's not moving? So, um, but maybe I'm just misinterpreting. Maybe you're just using the language of appearance. Maybe it's just allegorical. Maybe it's, it's something like that. Is that the case? Well, um, we can ask Muhammad, right? Muhammad, of course, surely is, is the messenger of the Almighty Allah, knew that the sun doesn't actually move in relation to the earth, right? Maybe we should just giving him the benefit of the doubt. So we can go to the Ahadith sources to find out. So according to Sahih Bukhari, Volume 4, Book 54, Chapter 4, Number 421, it says, Narrated Abu Dar, the Prophet asked me at sunset, Do you know where the sun goes at the time of sunset? I replied, Allah and the Apostle know better. He said, It goes till it prostrates itself underneath the throne and takes the permission to rise again. And it is permitted, and then a time will come when it will be about to prostrate itself, but its prostration will not be accepted. And it will ask permission to go on its course, but it will not be permitted. But it will be ordered to return when it has come, and so it will rise in the west. And that is the interpretation of the statement of Allah, and the sun runs its fixed course for a term decreed. That is the decree of Allah, the exalted and mighty, the all-knowing. So there we have it. We have a clarification from Muhammad on what he meant. He did not mean it to be taken allegorically. He did not mean to use the language of appearance. Um, in Sunan Abu Dawud, which is another of the Hadith traditions, um, we also read, Abu Dar said, I was sitting behind the apostle of Allah who was riding a donkey while the sun was setting. He, he asked, do you know where the, where the sun sets? I replied, Allah and his apostle know best. He said, it sets in spring of warm water. So, you know, just ask any astronomer, this is a point of which Muhammad, on which Muhammad was dead wrong. And such an error, you could argue, was excusable for a 1st 7th century Arab, but it certainly doesn't bode well for the Quran being the revealed word of God. Um, the Quran gets it wrong about semen production. It says that in Surah um, um, Atarik, uh, chapter 5 through 7, uh, verses, verses 5 through 7, um, it attempts to comment on the production of semen. It says, so let man consider of which stuff he is created. He is created of spouting water that comes out from between the loins and the chest bones. So, again, the Quran has another opportunity to, to impress us with its science, but again, it blows the opportunity, and it demonstrates to us um, that it's not divinely inspired. Um, you know, semen is produced in the seminal vesicle, and Lakitu is in the pelvis. It's not produced between the lines and the chest bones. It's simply just straightforward science um, and, and reproduction biology. Um, Muhammad also gets it wrong about parental resemblance. So you read inside the carry. Um, Muhammad is asked about parental resemblance and why a child attracts a similar to the father or the mother. And he says, as for the child, if the man's discharge precedes the woman's discharge, the, man, the child attracts a similarity to the man. And if the woman's discharge precedes the man's, then the child attracts a similarity to the woman. Again, another opportunity for Muhammad to show us his scientific knowledge. But again, he gets it wrong. Um, Muhammad even gets it wrong on sex determination. Um, in Sahih Muslim, it says, Anas ibn Malik reported directly from Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, that he said, Allah the exalted and glorious has appointed an angel as a caretaker of the womb, and he would say, My Lord, it is now a drop of semen. My Lord, it is now a clot of blood. My Lord, it has now become a lump of flesh. And when Allah decides to give it a final shape, the angel says, My Lord, would it be male or female? Or would, be a, uh, would it be an evil or a good person? 
What about his livelihood and his age? And is it's all written as he is in the womb of his mother? Um, so he gets it wrong about sex determination. Um, so um, he, he argues that it takes place only after the final shape of the embryo has been formed. It's just nonsense. It's just basic embryological errors. Um, he gets it wrong about personal hygiene. He says in Sahib Bakari um, that um, if, um, um, if a house fly falls in the drink of any one of you, he should dip it in the drink and for one of his wings has a disease and the other has a cure for the disease. Um, it's in the Nabata Wood, 67. I heard that the um, people asked the Prophet of Allah, peace be upon him, water is brought for you from the water of Buddha. It is a well in which dead dogs, menstrual cloths, and excrement of people are thrown. The Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, replied, Verily, water is pure and is not defiled by anything. And finally, in the Sinan ibn Majah, 520, it says it was, it was narrated uh, that Jabir ibn Abdullah said, We came to a pond in which there was a carcass of a donkey. So we refrained from using the water until the Messenger of Allah came to us and said, Water is not made impure by anything. Then we drank from it and gave it to our animals to drink, and we carried some with us. So, on virtually everything that the Quran says about science, it gets it wrong. Every single attempt that the Quran makes to impress us with its science, and, and every attempt that Muhammad makes to impress us with its science, it invariably gets it wrong. Um, so that's, again, um, a, another argument for why, the Quran, why Islam has to be false. Premise one, if the Quran contains demonstrable scientific errors, the Quran is fa- Islam is false. Premise two, the Quran does contain demonstrable scientific errors, therefore Islam is false. Um, so there's a, a, another argument to add to that array. Okay, that's good. Uh, as I was, you know, I was thinking about that. Off the top of your head, give some kind of counterexamples in the scriptures where you think uh, the Bible uh, has it right on certain scientific issues. Okay, good question. I mean, I personally don't like to use those types of arguments um, from the Bible because I think that you can make, um, I mean, I, 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 I think that um, many of those texts that people like Hugh Ross and others go to to show that, um, that there are scientific insights in the Bible, for example, the heavens being stretched over into the expansion of the universe and the earth being um, a circle and all that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that I think that it's reading into the text to draw modern science out of it. And I don't think that um, I would use the Bible in that way, and I don't think it's a strong apologetic for a Christian to make, just as I don't think it's a strong apologetic for a Muslim to make. Okay, yeah, that's that is good. All right. Let's do this, folks. We're going to take a break. It's uh, about 7 o'clock, top of the hour. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we will come back. Uh, phone number to call in if you want to talk to Jonathan is 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. Be back in a minute with your questions. You're listening to the Anchorberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. 
The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being. Where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making the rounds on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting, show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers. And design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns there that point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is if you imagine a pan balance. And you've got a bale that includes one side. And you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar Darwinian evolution, and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. Jonathan, talk to us for a minute about some of the similarities between Christianity and Islam as far as the uh, monotheism in general. Maybe contrast that with pantheism and maybe some of the other views, if, if uh, you don't mind. Sure. So 
um, among the so among the issues which unite Christians and Muslims is the concept of monotheism, which obviously differs from polytheism, the idea that there's many gods, and Mormonism would be in a, would be one worldview which would believe in polytheism. And in that respect, I would say that Islam is closer to um, Orthodox Christianity than Mormonism is because it's monotheistic. Um, Muslims also, you know, they, they are Abrahamic in terms of their origin, so they um, they trace their origin back to Abraham, and they believe in patriarchs. They believe in many of the biblical prophets. They believe in, um, in as I've already alluded to, the New Testament and the Torah as authoritative text, um, at least at least in their original form. Although, as I've shown, the Quran assumes that the Christians and Jews had access to those scriptures. Um, so there's, um, they obviously differ starkly with regard to the nature of God. So whereas we as Christians would believe that God is triune, Muslims believe that he is Unitarian. That there's only, so there's one God, um, and there's, he's one in person. It's a very, very unified concept. And whereas in Christian Trinitarianism would maintain, yes, God is one. We believe in only one God, but he is complex in that unity. So as a Christian, I would say that we have one divine essence comprised of three divine persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those, those persons are co-divine, co-equal, co-eternal. Um, and so that's, that would be the, the main similarities and differences as far as the concept of God is concerned. I mean, Muslims have this concept called shirk, which is the greatest heresy, in, the greatest sin in Islam is to commit shirk. And shirk is ascribing partners to Allah. And so many Muslims would actually argue that the Trinity is um, is um, the, the the Trinity um, commits this this concept this, this this blasphemy of shirk, whereas I would argue that it is not because we're not arguing that we ascribe partners to Allah. We're saying that we have three divine persons who together comprise one divine being. Um, and so if you read the Quran and the Quran over and over again repudiates the Christian concept of the Trinity. And I think it does so um, in, in a way that misrepresents it. Um, and so this is another argument you can make. You could say, premise one, if the Quran misrepresents Christian theology, then the Quran is not the word of God. Premise two, the Quran does misrepresent Christian theology. Conclusion, therefore, the Quran is not the word of God. And so um, I, I could just look at a few of those texts um, just now to show that. So, so Surah, chapter, Surah 2 um, Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 116, says that they say, God has begotten a son. Glory be to him. Nay, to him belongs all that is in the heavens and on the earth. Everything renders worship to him. And you know, Christians don't, aren't saying that God has begotten a son. We're saying that there's an eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And the, the Son was never begotten. Um, in, in Surah 6, Verse 101, it says, To him is due the primal origin of the heavens and the earth. How can he have a son when he has no consort? He created all things, and he has full knowledge of all things. And we're not saying that Allah has taken to himself a wife and begotten a son. That's just not what Christians have ever said. And, and Mormons say that. Um, Mormons say that Elohim took to himself a, a wife, namely Mary, and begot a son. But, that's, um, but that wasn't around in Muhammad's day and came much much later and um, there's no reason to think anyone believed that um, at that point and 
even if they did, you know, you would expect the Quran to, to represent Orthodox Christian theology. And moreover, in Surah 19, verse 35, it says, It is not befitting to the majesty of God that he should be dead a son. Glory be to him when he determines the matter, he only says to it, be and it is. This um, Surah 19, verse 88 says, They say, God, most gracious, has begotten a son. Uh, again, that's not what we say. Um, it says in Surah 37, verses 151 to 152, It is not that they say from their own invention, God has begotten children, but they are liars. And we're not saying that God has begotten children. So again, misrepresentation. Surah 39, verse 4, Had God wished to take to himself a son, he would have chosen whom he pleased out of those whom he doth create. But glory be to him. He is above such things. He is God, the one, the irresistible. Um, Surah 16, verse 51. God has said, Take not for worship to gods, for he is just one God, and fear me and me alone. Um, Christians don't say that. Surah 9, verse 30. Then Jews call you there a son of God, and the Christians call Christ the son of God. That is a saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. God cursed be on him, and they are deluded away from the truth. Surah 23, verse 91. No son did God beget, nor is there any God along with him, if there were many gods. Um, so these are clear repudiations of the triune concept of God and also the concept of the sonship of Christ, but they fundamentally misrepresented. Uh, but let's say, I save the best for last. Let's take one more. In Surah 5, verse 72 through 76. This is the best one out of all of those, which I really think illustrates the concept that Muhammad has of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and the sonship of Christ. It says, They surely believe who say, Lo, Allah is the Messiah, son of Mary, the messenger, of himself, the messenger himself said, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Lo, who ascribeth partners unto Allah, for him Allah hath forbidden a paradise. His abode is a fire. For evil there, is, there will be no helpers. They surely disbelieve who say, Lo, Allah is the third of the three. When there is no God, save the one God, if they desist, not from so saying, if they desist not from so saying, a painful doom will befall on those of him who dis, most, those of them who disbelieve. The Messiah, son of Mary, was no more than a messenger. Messengers the like of whom have passed away before him, and his mother was a saintly woman, and they both used to eat earthly food. See how see how we make the revelations clear for them, and see how they are turned away. Will he not rather turn in? unto Allah and seek forgiveness of him, for Allah is forgiving merciful. Say, Serbi, in place of Allah, um, that which possesses, possesses for you neither hurt nor use. Allah it is, there is a hearer, the nor. So, there are interesting things noticed by this passage. Firstly, there's a statement that Christians claim that Allah is the third of the three, when there is no God save the one God. This is especially telling, since Christians believe in one God and only one God. And Christians believe that there is, um, though the, the, there's one God, he's complex in his unity. Um, so that is within, to say that within the, the one divine essence, there exists three called divine persons, as I already said. Um, so that's not the same as claiming there's three gods. It's not polytheism. And there's a second curious thing to notice about this passage. So it says in this, um, that the Messiah, son of Miriam, was no more than a messenger, Messengers are like if him had passed away before him, and his mother was a saintly woman. 
And so they both used to eat earthly food, it says. So why would the Quran say that Jesus and Mary both used to eat food? Um, could it be claiming that Muhammad believed that Christians were proclaiming Mary to be part of the Trinity and elevating her to the status of deity? Um, and we can also go to Surah Al-Maidah, which is the fifth chapter in the Quran, verse 116, which actually clarifies what Muhammad may be getting at here. It says, And behold, God will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, did thou say unto men, Worship me and my mother as God in derogation of Allah. He will say, Glory to thee. Neither could I say that I had no right to say. Had I said such a thing, thou wouldst indeed have known it. Thou knowest what is in my heart, though I, though I know not what is in thine. For thou knowest in full all that is hidden. So it seems to me that Muhammad thinks, or the author of the Quran thinks, that Mary is part of the Christian concept of the Trinity. And uh, Muslims will typically come back at that and say, well, um, you know, that's just talking about Mariolatry, the way that the Roman Catholics venerate Mary and they idolize her and they worship her, and it's just a repudiation of that Mariolatry in Roman Catholic theology. But there's a problem there. First of all, um, in Surah Al-Anam, verse 101, it speaks about how um, it says, far be from Allah that he should be a son, but how can he have a son when he never had a wife? Um, you know, it's, it's clear clearly the concept of the author that the sonship of Christ has connotations that, that Allah has taken to himself a bride. And the second point here is that if you read the context of this, in verse 75, it says that Jesus, the messenger of Allah and the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger, a rizul, an apostle. There have been messengers before him. His mother was very truthful. Both of them used to eat food. Now, why would it say that they ate food? It only makes sense that, that he would say that if Muhammad thinks that Christians believe her to be part of the Trinity and part of, the, part of God or, or, or God herself. It seems, in fact, that the author of the Quran saw that the Trinity entailed three gods, not one divine essence made up of three divine persons. Um, so that's, that's significant. Um, so, so, that, that'd be, um, so to summarize then, uh, the argument I put it in syllogistic form is this, premise one, if the Quran misrepresents Christian theology, Islam is false. Premise two, the Quran does misrepresent Christian theology. Conclusion, therefore Islam is false. There's another argument to add to that array of argumentation that Islam cannot be correct. Uh, all right, very good. Uh, I remember the first time I heard that argument thinking uh, <laughs> how clever and, uh, and unique that actually was. So good, good stuff. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's see, we've got about 15 minutes. We had someone ask uh, about the actual evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that? What's, what kind sure. of historical yeah. reasons do we have? I know that's a big stumbling block uh, for most Sure. Of yeah, and it's important also before I get into this that Muslims, according to the Quran in Surah Anisa, verse 157, as I already alluded to, denies the crucifixion of Jesus. And so, obviously, if you don't have a death, you don't have a resurrection. And so, um, Muslims would deny this concept of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, it's important that we provide evidence for those. Um, let me start with by producing, by by offering some evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus, and then I'll talk about the resurrection. So, um, you know. One of the most powerful arguments, I think, for the crucifixion is the fact that the, the crucifixion was an item of mockery for the early Christians. I mean, the Jews mocked the Christians for this belief in the dying Messiah. The, the Romans mocked the Christians for their belief in the dying Messiah. Um, so um, the, 
Um, so Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, says that he who is killed by being hung on a tree is under God's curse. He's rendered literally heretic. And, um, the, um, and, and so why, why would the early Christians invent a story where God in the flesh, the awkward of the Old Testament, steps into human history incarnate and winds up being crucified naked in front of his enemies? It's clearly clear, clear from the earliest days that they regarded him um, as, as of divine status. And you could build an argument for that, but that's um, another story. Um, and we, we, ha- we have sources such as, for example, the Trifo, who's a Jewish philosopher in the second century, had a dialogue with Justin Martyr, um, who was a Christian apologist. And, and in that dialogue, Trifo said to Justin Martyr, those are such like scriptures, sir, compel us to wait for he who is son of man to receive from the ancient of days the everlasting kingdom. But this so-called Christ of yours was dishonorable and inglorious, so much so that the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him, for he was crucified. And in fact, in, in I believe it's in Rome, there's graffiti um, of a man beholding a crucified donkey. And the, and the caption is, Alexandros worships his God. And so the Jews are mocking the Christians for the belief in a crucified Messiah. The Romans are mocking the Christians for the belief in a crucified Messiah. Um, and not only that, but you have, you have early testimony for the crucifixion. You have the, the, the Carmen Christi in Philippians 2, quoted by Paul, this ancient Christian hymn, which probably dates to the 30s or so. And um, you have the Creed, quoted the oral tradition quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I pass out to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and so forth. And there's reason to think that he likely received that upon his visit to Jerusalem because he met with Peter and James there who were mentioned in that creed. Um, and, you know, the mnemonic structure and the, it's designed for easy memorization, the use of the Aramaic name Cephas and so forth, suggests that that's in fact an oral creed. And so you've got early testimony, you've got multiple testimony, you've got um, the epistles mention the crucifixion, the gospels mention the crucifixion, John is independent of synoptics, you have Tacitus, the Roman um, Senate member who mentions the crucifixion, you have Josephus who mentions the crucifixion. Um, so you have all these lines of evidence, and there's much more I, that I could get into if I had time. Um, so Jesus was in fact crucified um, contra uh, the Quran. What about the resurrection, though? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, I think... Um, if you look at the evidence, it's very difficult to explain the dynamics of Christianity's origin without the resurrection. Um, how the Christian, Christian movement began, why, to, why it got off the ground, why it took the very precise shape and structure that it did. Um, the, um, the Jews had no belief in a, in a dying, much less rising Messiah. Um, and there was no need to posit the resurrection. The, in fact, the resurrection narratives are completely devoid of, theolo- of theological reflection, you know, they didn't have any. They didn't have the rich arsenal of prophetic references to appeal to. You know, Matthew, in particular, when he talks about um, events in, in the life of Jesus, loves to say, "This was done so that the scripture might be fulfilled," and then he quotes the scripture. But in the case of the resurrection narratives, there's none of that. Um, in fact, when and Luke tells us that the disciples report the empty tomb, it says at first they did not believe the woman, for it seemed to them like nonsense. Um, and in John, it says that um, they still had not realized that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Um, and when you look at what, Jew, what the Jews believed about resurrection, this concept of resurrection, you look at, um, for example, the, the, the Pharisees, and they, they believed in a, 
and, and a resurrection, but they believe in a general resurrection at the end of time. They didn't believe in this concept of a first fruits resurrection, where you would have one man in the middle of history rising from the dead. Um, the Sadducees um, didn't believe in any um, form of resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits or demons or angels and so forth. Um, and so one might say they were very Sadducee. You know, that's where they... Um, and um, so, so you have, um, so it clearly didn't come from a Jewish um, background. Why would they invent the resurrection? I mean, and it's also interesting that in Daniel 12 is one of the key passages in Second Temple Judaism um, concerning resurrection, where it talks about the, the righteous of Israel shining like stars in the kingdom of their, of their heavenly father. And no one ever portrays Jesus at the, moment, at the time of the resurrection as shining like a star. And so that's, a, that's um, another interesting point. Uh, it's also interesting, incidentally, that John, uh, he writes his gospel and his epistles largely as a polemic against ascetic Gnosticism, which is becoming popular um, in his day. And uh, ascetic Gnosticism was the idea um, that Jesus, in fact, didn't have a physical body, right? So he was fully God, but he wasn't. I mean, it, the, I mean the ascetics saw a matter uh, material things as being corrupting and defiling, and so um, they didn't believe that Jesus had a physical body. And, and John emphatically repudiates this um, in his gospel and his epistles. He's very emphatic about how J Thomas um, gets to touch Jesus, about how Jesus ate broiled fish in the seashore, and so forth. And yet, this same John has Jesus appearing and disappearing at will, entering and leaving through closed doors. That's not the kind of thing you're going to invent. Um, there's there's tremendous evidence for the, the empty tomb as well. There's, um, the, the women are the primary witnesses to the empty tomb, um, whereas in patriarchal society like ancient Palestine, the testimony of women was not highly regarded. Um, and so that's something which you would be very unlikely to make up if you were inventing a story concerning the resurrection. Um, the earliest Jewish polemic against the early Christian movement was that the disciples had stolen the body um, while the guards had slept. That's not only in Matthew chapter 27, but it's also in um, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo toward the end, and it's also in the Tolent of the Issue, which is a medieval collection of early Jewish writings. Um, you, also, um, you also have to explain the post-resurrection appearances. Um, and not only do we have multiple accounts for those, but the people who are purported to have witnessed the resurrected Christ went to their deaths for their testimony that they had seen the resurrected Christ. So, for example, Peter, um, he went, to, we know from, uh, from sources like Clement of Rome and Tertullian and Oregon and others, that he went, that he, and even John 21 anticipates this, and if John was written after his death, he wouldn't have falsely, he wouldn't have attributed the prophecy to Jesus, which would not come to pass. And so it seems very clear that Peter did die for his faith, and yet he was the one who was terrified of crucifixion and denied the Lord three times to save his own skin. Um, so something changed that man. Um, James, um, according to um, Mark 3 and John 7, Jesus' own brothers were not believers in him during his lifetime. And yet, um, uh, he, he um, according to Flavius Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, and also the later second century Christian historian Hicasippus, is quoted by Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History, um, James dies the death of a martyr for his testimony um, and for his faith uh, as the leader of the Jerusalem church. 
And so you have some explaining to do. You know, I like to ask the skeptic, how much would it take to convince you that your elder brother was the Yahweh of the Old Testament to the point of martyrdom, right? You can just imagine James and his brother doing Bible studies, and, and they're studying, you know, how God poured out the ten plagues on the Egyptians and, and led the Israelites through the Red Sea and appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and so forth. And your brother's like, yeah, that was me, right? It was, it was strength credulity, and yet he went to his death for that belief. And so I argue that that suggests that... Um, that it is that it's um, that it's, it's historically credible, um, and there's 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 much else much other evidence beside, but that, that's at least a start on the evidence for the resurrection. If people, if your listeners want some good books on this topic, I'd recommend where you can get a lot more detail on this. Uh, Michael Lacuna's uh, book, uh, which has been out a couple of years now, called uh, "The Resurrection of Jesus: A New Historiographical Approach," which is a massive book um, and is just concerned with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and makes a very compelling cumulative argument for that. I'd also recommend reading N.T. Wright's book, "The Resurrection of the Son of God," um, and uh, those would be, um, I think, the best treatments of this topic. Okay, great. Uh, we got five minutes. Do you want to talk about the textual preservation of the Quran? Oh, sure, we can talk about that. So, one, um, I mean, there's a lot more that could be said than can be packed in five minutes, but I'll, I'll make a start on that. Um, so, the one argument that Muslims often make for the Quran being the Word of God is its alleged uh, perfect preservation. And they'll claim that. Um, the Quran has been perfectly preserved right down to the letter. And this is evidence for the Quran's divine inspiration. And they'll often point to the Bible and say that it's all been corrupted, whereas the Quran is perfectly preserved. We have exactly to the letter what was originally revealed to the Prophet Muhammad um, between the years 610 and 632. And it's just completely wrong. Um, the Quran has not been perfectly preserved, uh, and we can show that it's not been perfectly preserved. Uh, from the documentary sources, I mean, the story behind... So the, the, the New Testament text of transmission differs starkly from the Quranic um, text of transmission. For the New Testament, you have what's called an uncontrolled or a free transmission. For the, um, for the Quran, you have a controlled transmission. And what, happens, what happened in the situation... So, so with, with, New, with the New Testament... Up until 313 AD, where you have the Edict of Milan, which grants freedom to the Roman Empire, you have um, the church being the, the persecuted minority. They are persecuted. Um, they are under, in no position to have a, a body or person, organization, institution to impose a, a uniformity on the, or, on the text of the, of the New Testament. Um, so you have multiple lines of transmission. You have multiple people copying. You have no. You have um, all of it, You have um, many, many variants preserved, um, and so forth. There's no sort of canonical, uh, authorized um, New Testament uh, Greek manuscript, and that's simply not the case. Whereas with the Quran, after Muhammad died, his immediate successor was a man called Abu Bakr, who was his uh, who, who was his best friend. And Abu Bakr was the first of four men who called themselves the rightly guarded caliphs. And um, there was another friend of Muhammad's called Umar, and there was another one called Zayd bin Tabith. And Zayd bin Tabith had been a former scribe of Muhammad before he died. And there was a um, concern because um, 
after Muhammad died, there was um, what's called the Apostasy Wars, which you can read about in Al-Tabari's History, uh, Volume 10. Um, and the, um, one, um, because many of the, the tribes left their, um, forsook their allegiance to Islam and stopped paying the jizya, which is a type of tax. And so um, Abu Bakr led those wars against those tribes, and they became known as the Apostasy Wars. And one of those battles involved there was called the Battle of Yamama. And in the Battle of Yamama, um, they sent the men of Kura in. Now, who were the men of Kura? Now, the men of Kura were men who had memorized the Quran, or portions of the Quran. And so um, there was this widespread belief among the early Muslims that those who had memorized the Quran would be preserved by Allah. And so they have this brilliant idea, we'll send these men into fight. And guess what? They get slaughtered or many of them get slaughtered. And so casualties were high among the men of Kura, we're told in Sahih Bukhari. And Sahih Bukhari tells us that there was a, a situation where they were afraid that they were going to lose portions of the Quran because so many of them were being killed. And so um, Uthman, uh, or sorry, Abu Bakr, who's the first writer of the Caliph, and Umar, and uh, Zayd ibn Tabit took it upon themselves to gather in the different parts of the Quran and compile it into one document. And so this is done, and then this document is given to Hafsa, who is one of Muhammad's widows, and um, for safekeeping. And then later on, um, during the time of Uthman, he's a third of these rightly guided kilos. Umar was the second. And then um, this is happening in the 650s now. Um, there's these different recitations of the Quran, these variant recitations, and so there's this fear that, they're, that, they, that the Muslims are going to differ in their reading of the Quran. And so what they did, they... Um, they decide to, to produce an authorized version um, and bring in all these manuscripts and burn all of the, um, the competing manuscripts. And so this is done and you produce an authorized version of the Quran. Um, it's, um, it's interesting, incidentally, that Ibn Masood, whom Muhammad listed as one of his top Quran teachers and experts, actually... Um, I actually doesn't want to give up his, his copy, and he doesn't, I and mean, that's interesting. And why does he not want to give up his copy? Um, you, there's, there's, although Uthman has destroyed the documentary evidence, which would, suggest, which would tell us about the textual preservation or lack thereof concerning the Quran, we can nonetheless look at the documentary evidence. And there are passages throughout Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Muslim Sahih Sunan Abu Dawood, and so forth, which suggest that, in fact, the Quran is not being textually preserved. There are entire chapters, there are entire portions of chapters, there are entire verses, which, according to the primary literature, have been lost. Um, and so you have, you have real problems there. Um, so so that, that's essentially what I'd say on that. All right, Jonathan, well, I want to appreciate you uh, or say thank you again for, for coming on the show and really enjoyed it. And talk for a second about where you're going tonight. Maybe people listening in the area may want to come and hear you. Sure. So I'm speaking this evening at 8.30 p.m. Um, that's at University of Texas at Dallas. Um, and I will be speaking on the, um, the historical credibility of the New Testament and why I think the New Testament can be trusted. Um, you can go to, uh, if you want the full details of that, you can go to crossexamine.org forward slash blog where I posted the details where you'll find directions and you'll find where um, the venue is within the university and so forth. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, it would be good to see people there. Is there any website particularly you want to send people that could come check out some of your blogs? 
Sure. So I'd recommend uh, the Christian Apologetics Alliance. Go to ChristianApologeticsAlliance.com. Go to uh, crossexamine.org forward slash blog. And if you want to check out some of my intelligent design material, you can go to Evolution News and Views at evolutionnews.org. Um, and, and so those would be the primary websites where you can read my material. All right, Jonathan, we want to thank you again for coming on the show, and we will have you on again next time, huh? All right. Well, thank you for having me again. All right. Appreciate you listening, and be with us again next week, folks. Uh, Starting October, we will start our month on the Protestant Reformation, and I hope to have a debate on October 31st, or it might be October 30th, on Sola Scriptura. And I'll keep you guys up to date on that. Uh, Thanks for listening, and tune in again next week. God bless.